Hi, Tom. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Tim. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. That's amazing. Let me bring you up so I can see you. I just have to get just the volume a little bit. <laughs> okay. Does that feel okay? Yeah, that's good. So nice to see you. So good to see you too. You don't look any different. Well, you neither, really. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while, yes. Um, so, look, thank you for taking part in this uh, kind of series that I'm doing. It's, it's really just an excuse for me to talk to people I really want to talk to. That's great. It's, it's public. It's private conversations made public, really. So yeah. um, that's that's the idea, and it's just uh, lovely to be able to reconnect with you. I was thinking um, about the very first time we met, and uh, was that 18 years ago, was it, in Bath? I, um, some, I think it was, hard to believe. Yeah, so, something like that. And I just wanted to tell you the story that I remember. It's a long time ago, so you know, forgive me if I've misremembered it, and I've got this wrong, which I could have done. But what I remember is that we were both speaking at a thing called the Prophets Conference, which is a terrible name, which was a lot of very interesting speakers. And it was in the pump room in Baths, so really old uh, Georgian room with these big yes. paintings on the walls with full length pictures of people and very uh, stately. And, yes. and I remember going up and giving my presentation and I was doing this kind of stand up philosophy at that time and talking yeah. about my, my new book, Lucid Living, and I, I did my kind of slightly highly energized presentation that, that <laughs> I do, and uh, it went, it seemed to go pretty well, and then you yeah. went on after me, and then you came oh. on the stage, and you said, um, I'm sure Tim gave a really good presentation, but, but unfortunately I missed most of it, because while he was speaking, the figures in the paintings came down into the hall and started dancing with each other. And it made <laughs> such a big impression on me. I just instantly like, I, I, who is this man? I love him. That, that's just so, it's just the idea that while I'd be doing all this philosophy, you'd be watching these figures coming down from the, from the walls and dancing. Well, that was, that was not a very gracious thing to say. But, oh, it was uh, beautiful because it was done. It was done oh, in a lovely way. I thought it was uh, beautiful. I remember that. I remember that happening, yes. Quite, that's very interesting. Wow. Yeah. And then we were, weren't we with, uh, we were with Satish somewhere. Maybe it was that same event. Yeah. I know. I think it might, might've been. And then, and then you came down and spent some time here in Glastonbury. Yes. Which was, yes. That's which was, right. Which was beautiful. Yeah, it was great. So the, the, the place I want to kick off with you, um, just because it's the, the starting place for me, for what I'm looking at here is with a ridiculously big question to which there is obviously no proper reply but what i'm trying to get at is with the what is life is you're what you what are you 80 now tom are you but i'm i old? just turned 80 i turned 80 this month like two weeks ago well, happy birthday you said you're <laughs> you're 80 i'm 61 which seems well, i'm sure being 80 feels unbelievable to you being 61 feels crazy to me yeah we've been here on this crazy trip for a lifetime We've written all these books, blah, blah, blah. But underneath all of that, what do you, what do you think it is? 
that we've been experiencing all this time and and what what's it for or it do you understand what I'm trying to get at what what is this I thing? think I know what you mean yes I mean I could speak to it I, I can't yeah. answer it but I can speak to it yeah I lately I've been I mean this is a cliche maybe but lately I've been much more aware of how in a particular way um our lives are really in dream rather than so-called physical reality. I think we really are primarily dreaming people. Uh, I, I like when you like now for us immediately we meet each other and we talk about our memory. Yeah, and that's a place really not of. It's like there's no recording of that somewhere. You know, there's no tape recording of it. It doesn't exist physically somewhere. But it's there for us, and it has a lot of meaning. Yeah. I love the fact that you mentioned that. I've forgotten that memory, <laughs> and it was so good. I'm, I'm glad to have it back and alive for me now. So that's to me, that's that memory and night dreams. It's all the dream world, and it's not really the same as waking time. So I have this feeling, can't articulate it too well, but that we are primarily in dream. Yeah. And that uh, part of that experience is in this world, I mean, in the physical world. But even when we're there, it's a combination or it's an enmeshing of the dream and what is happening at the moment. And the, the dream seems to me to be much more, much thicker and much bigger than the, 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 the physical experience. I have never heard anyone say it that clearly, and I completely know what you mean. I completely is—is is that what you mean by the soul? Yes, absolutely. That's the realm yeah. of soul. Yes, that's what I mean by soul too. Yeah. So it's both interior and exterior. The ex interior and exterior don't really count as much when you think of it that way. Say more about what you mean by that. Well, I'm not saying that it's an interior life that we are living and that's primary because we, in our waking days, we are still acting in dream. Yes. It's still, it's still yes. a dream. And so it's hard to say that because obviously part of it is, it's certainly different from like having a memory. It's different because it's present to us and it's meaningful and it really makes a difference how we act and what happens in this world. But nevertheless, it's still, we're creating, I think, a better dream world all the time. Oh, this beautifully put. I, I, I have, um, I mean, one of the things which I play with a lot when I'm talking is to, to invite people to see that they're in it now and that we're always in it. To see that, you know, when I speak, what they hear is movements in the air, but what they experience is meaning and images. And, and, and where are they? We're, we're, we're always, we're in the psyche or the soul all the time, obviously. Right. And it's right. non-material and it's right. non-spatial in the sense yeah. that it's not in this material space. That's right. and, and it's where all the action's happening. We, we've got together here and it doesn't really matter as much as it might that we're physically on different continents because no. what we're sharing right now is that non-material space yeah so so the technology that we have uh allows us to be uh it, it works because it it serves the dream world it's not 
it's it's not a, it doesn't interfere with it. It could, but it doesn't in this case. And so it, it serves it, and we are able to be in this psychic space in, through the technology. So, so one of the things that I've, since we've met, one of the things which has really taken off for me, and I don't really want to drag the conversation into this, but I just have to mention it because of what you've said. Uh-huh. Um, much to my own surprise, I've gone from a real emphasis on the experience of, of waking up or that love and to really needing to work out an understanding of philosophy, one that can um, also speak to the mainstream understanding of science and all of that. And to cut a long story short, the reason I wanted to mention it in this bit of the conversation was that what I, the narrative which attracts me is the evolutionary narrative, which seems to hold everything together into this one, that the, that the universe is a creative process. Mm. And it, one of the ways I would describe that, and I don't think this is controversial in a way, even for hard-nosed materialists, is we've, we, from four, over these 14 billion years, the universe has evolved into a dream because we've arrived at this place where the most emergent, the latest thing on the block, the thing which is still evolving like, like exponentially while the rest is kind of slowly ticking over is this. This, this imaginal reality. And that's where we, we, we all want to hang out. And, and, and I mean, just in a, just amazes me now how everyone I know in, ingests a story nearly every night. Now, it's, mm. everybody is like story, story, imagination. It's like we're living in this incredible imaginal domain, which has arisen. So we're still in the physical, that's where we've come from, but over, thousands and thousands and thousands of years but where we've arrived at is not physical at all it's something which transcends that the um to me one of the greatest uh challenges um i think of it in terms of the spiritual sometimes although i don't like to use that word very much um that this idea of incarnation is 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 what we're talking about to some extent. And I always want to say that to, to religious and spiritual people that it's, it's so important never to separate or to pull apart the physical from the spiritual or from the psychological, to pull those apart, that to speak of them as separate doesn't serve us very well. So but it's difficult to do that because how do you, there is a distinction clearly between our experience of our memory and, uh, and being you know, what we're doing now, the things that we're doing. So, but I think it is possible with our intention and the way we think, the, the way we approach things, to at least try to keep the, the, the uh, soul and spirit uh, enmeshed with the physical more than we have in the past few hundred years where philosophy has taken us, has, has felt it important to separate those. And there may have been a good reason for that, you know, to be able to examine them and to pull them apart for a while. That makes sense to me. But um, I think maybe now the spirit of the times leads us to bring them back together. And I think that's really the job to do. And that's what I try to do. 
me too and that and that's the other reason that i find myself wanting to bring together all the what i've spent my life doing which is exploring spirituality with what other people have spent their lives doing which is exploring the nature of matter and biology and, and that somehow all of that fits together and is all needed to describe the experience that i'm having now at, 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 at any time and somehow it must all it must all speak to each other you said spirit and, and soul tom do you do you is that two separate categories for you? Or? Yes, yes, okay. totally. What, yeah. In what way? Well, there's a, there's an old tradition that that this, that uh, considers them separately. Uh, mm -hmm. The alchemists have images that uh, that clearly keep spirit and soul separate, and they, their language does sometimes. And some of the uh, philosophers uh, going back probably to European Renaissance times uh, back. So. Um, and uh, uh, Jung uh, touches on it a little bit, but my friend uh, James Hillman wrote an article when I was just getting started with his work called Peaks and Veils, where he wrote about the distinction between soul and spirit. And that made a lot of sense to me. In fact, it was like one of these windows opening up that helped me. And ever since I've been mentioning it in my talks and it's it, invariably at the end, at, when I finish speaking, one of the questions will be, you mentioned spirit and soul, what's the difference? Yeah. And so I, I just, I don't want to make a dogma out of it. I, I, I don't think, that's a way of imagining. I think there are other ways of doing it, but it's a way of imagining our situation where spirit generally tends to move us forward like we're, a person with spirit tends to you know, really want to move into the future. Evolution is a real spirit word in that sense, usually. Thinking about where we're headed and going. Future is a big thing. Soul seems to be more absorbed with the past. Huh. And uh, you know, uh, working over history and, and our personal history and our cultural history and thinking and digging up, like for me, I spend most of my time digging up old authors. I, I read Greek and Latin, you know, so I pull out my Greek and Latin texts and I read them closely. And not that I'm facile with them, but I can read them anyway. And, and uh, so uh, I think that's one interesting difference. Another is that the spirit tends toward perfection in, in many different ways. And soul seems to enjoy imperfection. And uh, you know, uh, the uh, wabi-sabi life, the life that is not perfect and uh, ordinary and simple and where you don't know everything and you don't have to be so smart. I think in the spirit, we really want to go into higher education, you know, that higher place, that upward place. And a lot of our images for spirit are upward, like steeples on churches and uh, going up ladders and steps. Um, you, if you go to business talks, you always hear about going up the ladder, never down the ladder. <laughs> so, I'm kind of a downward moving person in my work. That's what oh. I feel. So into soul. Yes. So I don't think I don't think this is th this can be sustained entirely because, for example, if you follow the as I often do the Greek uh, mythological way of a prism or filter for looking at things. 
the polytheism there indicates that there are spiritualities that are buried downward. You know, there's an underworld spirituality, you know, Persephone sort of thing, and there's a, a very physical kind of spirituality, and uh, Aphrodite sexuality is a very spiritual source and all of that. So I don't want to overdo the fact, but I think generally speaking, you can see that when we talk about spirit, we're moving forward and upward and we have a lot of passion toward movement and change. And all of that is, and the, the teaching is that, that both directions are equally valid and wonderful and required. And in fact, they need to influence each other. So soul and spirit always need, not balanced, never, never, you never get balance in these things, but just you know, an influence of one over the other and maybe a presence of one because spirit can certainly wound the soul. I, you know, I, I left home when I was 13 years old to enter a Catholic monastery. Well, I left this wonderful family for this rather emotionally cool, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, environment. And that really wounded me in many ways. My family did too, in its own way. I mean, I had a very wonderful family, but you know, sometimes families that are, I mean, no families are perfect. And, I think my family was Irish Catholic. Uh, their complete, uh, complete uh, fear of sexuality certainly wounded me. Right. right. Um, so I've had wounds on the soul side, but also from the spirit side, where I, where I could, I left my my family much too soon. I feel, and uh, I, I still feel the wounding of that. So yeah. uh, well, soul I, and spirit I, have an interesting relation to each other. I can uh, I can relate to that. I, I mean, I, I use the words slightly differently to, to but I love the sure. I love the, the what, what you've created there, and and uh, and certainly feel that I can see spirit wounds in my life where it's been so orientated. And one of the things which has been happening as I've got old is seeing that. And re, re, spirituality looks very different to me now than it did when I, I was know. 20 or 30. Yes. I mean, it looks so different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was interesting. You said you don't like to use the word very much. I'm, I'm, I don't. I like to find alternative words for it. But so far, uh, I usually just find several, maybe 100 words instead of one. <laughs> yeah. I ended up calling myself a philosopher only to avoid being a spiritual teacher. That's the truth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, the, the, it's just, I can't do that. So, so with, with the, those two directions, and I, I really get that, and that sense of, look, we're primarily dream beings. We're yeah. primarily soul, but not to dismiss the physical and the, the beauty of the sensory world and keep it all together. But our primary thing is we're this, these soul things, and which uh, I feel very much as well. Can you could you frame for your life like a, or more generally for life in general like I want to say purpose or that there's that there's what we do with that? I feel for my it's something I feel from myself primarily, but of course I've studied all these things. But I feel that uh, uh, my purpose is given to me and it, it unfolds as I go. So I can look back, you know, that saying of finding your path by looking back and see where you've come. Yeah. Uh, so that's how, that's how I feel about my own experience is that uh, I have responded 
to life's invitations that I never, ever could have thought of for, for myself, never, ever would have considered them. I grew up in a family of plumbers. <laughs> I mean, uncle, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's a good, that's a good profession. Yeah. And, uh, Especially so, for someone with none. Yeah, that's great. So uh, that's a style in itself. <laughs> and it suits you so well. Um, so I feel that um, I never would have found a way out, except I had some urge to enter this monastery. Yeah. You know, and it was overwhelming because my mother and father tried to talk me out of it. How old were you? 13. Same age as when I had my awakening. Is it really? Yeah. Well, oh, that was the sort well, of thing, 13. too, for me, really. Yeah. So that's what, uh, see, what I'm, what I'm saying is that that one came. And then when I was, you know, I, I, it was a 13-year program to become a Catholic priest, because that was part of it as well as it's being. It's very a, young to enter into aspect. something organized. Very like young, but it was typical at the time. Really? Very common. Was it? So, yeah, yeah, it was very common. Wow. A lot of my friends did it. So, uh, but it was tough in many ways. It was wonderful. And I've learned a lot. I still, I'd really love it. I love the monastic life. And I still try to live amongst life today in my own way. But uh, then after 13 years, I just, I just realized, really, it was came to a head one morning when I woke up and I realized that uh, it was over, that whatever had been inspiring me to do this against all odds and it took so much and i was so homesick um, much of the time yeah. i overcame all of that you might say yeah. in order to stay with the program and i but then immediately i had to leave because i could feel it in myself that this was absolute this was there's no questioning so i went to the head man there and i i told him i said you know i'm supposed to be ordained a priest in six months but i can't do it I said, I, I, don't, I even can't, can't even tell you why. I just know. And especially this morning, I know that this is, it's time for me to move on. He said, well, why don't you give it a year? You know, sort it out. And I said, I, that makes absolutely no sense to me because this morning I discovered that it's absolute. I know fully. I don't need any time to think about it. <laughs> so I left and I had no money. You know, they gave me $300, I remember, which was, not a whole lot to live on. And uh, so I, I went out and uh, into the world then and, and tried to make my way. And so that's to me, that is how I, that's my purpose. I discover my purpose by paying attention to the, what some people would call uh, using the Greek uh, term daimon. Yeah. Uh, following the, the urge, which again is both inner and outer. Sometimes it has occurred to me through the voices of other people, but usually it's an inner feeling. But it is, it's daimonic living. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's not demon, but daimon. So it's, I know you understand that. I like the, um, the Latin genius as well for it. The genius yeah. is a very good, it's the translation of daimon. Yeah. yeah, and you get that sense of the, that, it, it, for modern ears, sometimes you kind of catch what it really means. Yes, except for the daimon, is, and the genius too, as I understand it for the Romans, was a little more, more of a presence than we usually think of it. It, it wasn't a, a power of the mind, it was more like a, it was a presence. 
Right. And that's how I feel it. I feel it like this voice comes along and says, do this. This is the way Socrates talks about it. Really. And it sometimes is an actual voice, isn't it? Yes, you it is it? an actual voice. Yes. I mean, I've ended up just calling it the voice. I, I came across Jung calling it yes. the voice. The voice. And recently, right. and it just, it's like, yeah. who is that? <laughs> and sometimes it works in very small ways. Like the other day, I realized I hadn't paid attention to it. And I missed out on a good opportunity. I mean, I just hadn't, and I knew, I, I knew it was there and I didn't pay attention to it. You think that after talking about it all these years, I pay attention <laughs> to it all the time, but I didn't. <laughs> but so it's not just a big booming voice that says no. your whole life is going to change. It might be a voice that says, don't eat that food for breakfast this morning. It's going to make you sick. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure there, it's all individual, but, the, 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 as over the years, it, I don't get it very much, not as a speaking voice. You know, I have my own deep thoughts, but when it's an, a voice from like, wow, that's speaking to me. And it's, a, and it's, it's kind of got this laconic kind of quality for me and almost like it's back to laugh or, or just like, it's just kind of quite like playful, but not in a, but in a laconic kind of slightly sardonic maybe it's just that kind of it's a very laid back kind of mm. yeah <laughs> very particular it's kind of it makes is. me which seems odd to me but it is yeah i think you're right it it, it uh it does have that quality and maybe that's why it's easy to dismiss because we don't we don't take it so seriously but i i i, I do think that I, I i was aware of this just recently that in a small thing as i mentioned I didn't pay attention. And I, I tried to remind myself that it's really important to do that because if I don't do it in these small things, I might overlook the big things. Yeah. Although when I look back on my life, I really, do, I could tell you other stories of big, big moments for me where uh, it was not my choice to turn my life in a new direction because I had a purpose. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't that. It was the purpose comes afterwards. I discover what my purpose is once I pay attention to this voice. How how do you find it now, Tom? Looking back, I mean, you're you're that further on in the whole process than me, and mm -hmm. and and I know now because I know that I've got things that at sixty that I couldn't possibly have at forty, and and I can look at my father who's who died the last ten years. And I know I'm, I, I, every day I understand things that I didn't understand when he was alive. And, and that's interesting and slightly painful. And, but when I, I'm, I'm just wondering how you feel looking back on, on your life. And, and, and it's got a particular, I mean, I wanted to ask you that anyway, but it has a particular relevance for me today because I've been waking up um, at kind of four o'clock in the morning recently. Um, and or a bit earlier and last night um really was getting my life uh, and seeing and, and feeling like almost from the outside and seeing it so differently from when i was in the inside and quite brutal in a way as well kind of like you know not not putting it down or anything i love it i'm so grateful because i'm so it's been such a you know i've been such so lucky but it seems so different now and i see it there's so, and i wondered how that did you have that? And does that progress, do you think? Or does it change? Some things, some things change and, and, and quite a few things remain the same. 
uh, I don't find the changes to be as strong as I expected. Ah. For, for example, people ask me, uh, I, I published uh, my book, Care of the Soul, about uh, 30 years ago now. And uh, people, you know, still write me about it. And 30 years later, and I think to myself, wow, that was, I was old. It's a different person then. But uh, I look it over and I think, well, you know, that, I'm fine. I don't, there's nothing I would change. Which I might change the writing style a bit. I think it was a little heavier than I, I write now. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I feel that uh, at that time in my life around then, things became pretty solid for me. And like, I think I really, the big change for me was when I was, wow, I can't believe that's how long ago. When I was 30, to 35, I went to, I went to do my doctoral studies at Syracuse University in religious studies. And that gave me a foundation. And then when I read Jung very, very carefully and thoroughly when I was there, and then met James Hellman in the same year, who was a real, a real guide for me in many ways, a close friend and guide. Uh, so, uh, I felt uh, that gave me a, a, a foundation for my practice as a therapist all these years, but also gave me a foundation that gave me confidence and uh, security and centering in my life. So that's what before that was quite unsteady. I was quite unsteady. But with that, I it gave me the foundation. And so when I look back now at 80, I don't see a, a, an awful lot of change from those days, really. I don't see, I see some about some very personal things, like I'm very stable with my family. There was a time for, throughout my 40s, I had that relationship uh, issues that I never knew how to, I didn't think they'd ever settle down. But they did for me, and uh, eventually. And I had a daughter, my daughter, when I was 50, right. 51. So things got quite stable then. So when I look back now at 80, I don't see an awful lot of change. It's kind of strange and sometimes kind of scary. I think I should have changed more. <laughs> but I look back to 60, and I don't see much change, really. I guess the truth is, if I look at myself, and, and probably this is true of all of us, I think you said it, is that the funny thing about a life is that in the one, like when I meet my old friends, which I always love, they are the same and they are different. It's like there's something constantly moves, but there's some essence which is the same. And with the things that we had so young, I'm reminded of Jung saying that sometimes lives have like a seed moment where it all is going to yeah. come from. And I would trace mine to the experience I had at 12, 13. That was definitely yes. the seed. Mm -hmm. And then all hell let loose. But nevertheless, wow. that was the seed. And, um, and I'm still following it. And kind of, I think, right. reevaluating. So as I look back on all the things I've believed and done, and there's a reevaluation of the naivety of my, when I was younger. And, and by younger, I don't mean necessarily that long ago either. You know, it's like, yeah. there's that kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's almost like an embarrassment that it's taken me so long to see some things. Mm -hmm. uh, not terrible things or anything that's, you know, like too, oh God, but just enough no. to go, oh, I see, you know, that's, that's who I've been. That's, 
That's the yeah. nature of this person. I think maybe we overdo this need for change and development. Oh, interesting. That, I like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not as important maybe as appreciating uh, stasis, you know, just being where you are. That that also is, and I think that's a quality of soul as well, that things don't change as much as you think. But one, one version of that that I like, I'll mention it sort of intellectually first and then my personally, but is the idea that uh, we don't really go through life. I, I, by the way, I, I published a book on aging uh, a couple, two years ago now. And yeah, I saw. So I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of that, what I was thinking of when I was writing that book, that, that I don't feel that, um, that our earlier years or my earlier years, our earlier years, were there in the past and we refer to them because they were and now they, they are not. Rather, I feel that we are the constant accumulation of that past. And, and so these, these, my younger years are still there. They're fully present. So I don't think back literally, it's present. So Tom, yeah. before you started speaking, <laughs> I, was the, I was literally going to say to you, one of the things I love about having this conversation is that I have ideas which I want to try out on you to see what you make of them. <laughs> and the idea I wanted to try out on you was the vision of the past, which I have, which is it doesn't pass, it accumulates. Oh, and that everything that's ever happened is present in this moment, implicitly, Absolutely. otherwise yeah. it wouldn't be this moment. Yeah. And that therefore, you and I are made of our past. Yeah. That's what we are. That's and right. we connect to our past and then the past of everything and everyone. Yeah. And, and uh, I wanted to get your response to that idea and you've just said the exact same yeah. idea to me. I think we're, uh, it seems like we're in pretty good tune here. Yeah. No. So, so one of the things that came from that for me, which related to why I was going to say it, was because where one of the places it led me was so that in a way what I'm doing with my with a life, it, well, what it meant was I don't have a life. I am my life. I am this everything that happens, everything I do, everything I think, everything. I am the dream. I am. Yeah. It. And that but because I interact with it consciously that I'm in a process which could be called soul formation. I'm forming myself with the cosmos. And that, that, so that everything that happens and every choice I make and every, the, 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 I'm coming into a shape. I'm coming into a particular, a particularity based on the past, based on, and this, this is now part of it. We were, we're inside each other from 20 years ago we're, and, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. I feel about it, and it has very particular ramifications. So, uh, the way uh, I like to think of it is not that I am behaving now, or sometimes uh, through uh, because of what I experienced as a child, but that that child is present, yeah, and still needs things, still feels things, and still operates and uh, I, I have a I have a relationship to that child or yeah. to that young man or to the guy yesterday you know because you kind of you transcend it but you include it it is part of it that's it right. hasn't gone anywhere no it hasn't that's, gone and that's a, there's a huge solace to that I think because 
the idea of everything passing, I mean, there's a great, there's a great loss in, you know, if every, everything's just gone, but my sense is, and, and including, you know, when I'm with people who have had dementia or memory loss, and things, it feels like it hasn't gone anywhere. They may not be able to access it right now. That's right. But it's all there. They are yeah. still everything they've ever experienced. And that That's can right. never possibly not be. That's right. Yeah, I, I feel that strongly about, uh, uh, personally, you know, my, uh, my mother-in-law is, uh, has a lot of dementia at 95. And uh, I, uh, so I, I have this way, I have a, an opportunity now to relate to someone who doesn't have that uh, clear present. Um, and I just, a very close friend, just recently had an accident where he has a lot of a really heavy brain injury and he's not present to, in the usual way. Yeah. But, you know, you just relate. Yeah. I can't even see him now, but I mean, I relate uh, uh, as though he is fully present. He doesn't have to be articulating and acting rationally in this physical world in order to be present because that yeah. soul presence is something that's very different yeah i like the way you articulated it. it's much more much better than what i've been trying to say but that's that's what i'm trying to get to yeah there's um the other the use of your word soul i i, I can't remember if i've ever told you this but um after our meeting i think this happened a few years after you came over to Glastonbury, mm -hmm. but I came across, across a quote, which I'm hoping is you, because it was attributed to you. Um, uh. Uh, but it wasn't, I didn't come across it in one of your books. I think I came across it on the internet or something and it just jumped out of me. Maybe I noticed it was from you. And I don't use a lot of quotes from other people um, occasionally, but when I do my live stuff, which I haven't been doing recently because of COVID, but when I do my retreats and I want to take people to an experience, um, I nearly always use this quote. So I'm gonna give it to you and you can tell me if you ever did say it or if you can remember. Sure. But the quote, which I, and I adore it somehow, is the soul has a, and let me get this right, because there's a few words which I love in it. Um, it has an absolute and Oh, there's another word which is what I've lost. The soul has an absolute and something. Well, I just I just read that in you somewhere. So from you, I think it's unforgiving. And unforgiving. I only know that because you said that. Yeah. That's the word. Thank you. There you see, I'm getting yeah. more forgetful. Yeah, unforgiving. That's it. Thank you. So the, the, the soul has an absolute and unforgiving need for regular excursions into enchantment. Yes. And... I I'm hoping you did. Can you? Is that a? Yes, that's a that's a, one of one of the few sentences I remember from my books that it's from the reenchantment of everyday life. Yes, that book. What I love so much about them, why I say it to everyone, is it uses two words I would never normally use: absolute and unforgiving. It's like, and yet in that sentence, <laughs> I adore them because it feels like, yeah, no, no, really, it's absolute mm -hmm. and unforgiving. And if you don't go into, you put your attention into that, not just the dream, but the enchanted level of the dream, yeah. the place where it's magic, and then your life will lose all color and meaning and purpose. Yeah. And 
Yeah, so that changes the idea of purpose from a moral and intellectual purpose to uh, an aesthetic purpose. You know, that it's more like to to be in a world that sings, that chants, that uh, that is artistic and poetic and expresses something that you hear it or you you detect it. You don't. It's not. It's not a something you think through. It, yeah, because it, it's very. It, it's right. I mean, the, what I love about the psyche, about the soul, is that it's so big, and there's everything from the most extraordinary experience on ayahuasca to music. I mean, mm. wow, music, you know, yeah. to philosophical thought and its precision and its structure and representation and, and all of it is there. Such a, and each one has its own particular quality or, or it does something particular somehow, speaks a yeah. certain way. So personally, on the personal level, uh, that is important to me because part of my my movement in life, it wasn't again something I would decide, was I, I got very interested in music and especially music composition. And I taught myself music composition at first. And then I Is it studied music it. opposition? Yeah. Composition. Composition. Sorry, I thought you said yeah. opposition. I thought I don't know what no, that composition. is. Composition. Yes, thank you. Yes. Composing music. And yeah. so I did that quite seriously. And I actually went to, I got two degrees in music. Wow. And uh, I studied with some very good, very excellent composers. So, and then I decided that really that wasn't for me either. The music was not the direction. I don't know why I'd given so much to it, you know, seven years of my education to it. And I left it to get the my, my doctorate in religious studies, which was wonderful for me. Um, but the music is always there. So yeah. uh, one of the early books I wrote was about enchantment because chant uh, is a yeah. word that has been important to me. It was when I was in a monastery. monastery I directed yeah. chant all the time. Yeah. The Latin word for chant is contus. And so the re-enchantment of life is really is really hearing the music of life rather than uh, rather than intellectualizing it too much. I mean, I, I love intellectualizing. I do it all the time, but and it can be done in, in an enchanted way too. But I uh, I like the idea of, of living a more uh, the life of the artist, uh, not literally necessarily having to like I don't have to write music now, but. Uh, living the life of the artist so that everything I do write about with about the psyche is more musical than it is philosophical. What I love about the artists and why I, I also, I mean, that just, just, to, just because you the resonances. So when I was 15, I had a massive row with my dad and ran away to a friary where I almost became a friar. That was my version mm. and got involved as a Franciscan place and all the, that went back when I was 24 as well and nearly joined again. And that was all the chanting and all of that. And for the first half of my life, up until 35, uh, I was a musician, not a writer. And that was because it, nothing could change consciousness like music. And, and, yeah. and what attracts me about the artist, and I, I relate much more to the artist than I do the enlightened master or whatever, is that thing you said about soul and spirit, and your, your use of the term, is that 
what I love, or, 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 or although actually in the Christian tradition, it's more in the Eastern tradition, you get that transcendent, perfected. What I like about the Christian saints often is they struggle. Yes. And, and they're, they, they're, they're confronted with life and suffering life. And, and what I love about, about, about the arts is as well that it, 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 it enters right into that. And I guess, is that what you mean by the going down into, into yes. going down into life uh, yeah. And, yeah. and living those struggles and, and not knowing. Yeah. Uh, that's another theme that is really important to me. Uh, one of my favorite heroes is uh, Nicholas of Cusa. Uh-huh who uh, wrote uh, uh, De Doctor Ignorantia, which yeah. is hard to translate, something like Educated Ignorance. Yeah. And I like that idea so much that you, you, you become, and you, you study hard and you really try to learn everything you can, ultimately with the purpose of, this, of learning how ignorant you are and how much you don't know. And, and, and to build your, your way on not knowing rather than on a feeling that now you've learned something and so you've got that to step on. It's that you keep the not knowing as your, uh, your method. There's a, there's a, the, the, the phrase, I, I actually took this from Jung, funnily enough, um, years and years ago, it became very central to one phase of my work in a book called The Mystery Experience, actually. Um, because for, for years I felt like, oh, my job seems to be to, to, to come up behind people and go, Psst, have you noticed you don't know what's going on? and just remind people of that mystery. And there was a, um, there was a phrase in Jung where he, was, he said, not the, uh, not the niggardly either or, but the glorious both and. Mm -hmm. and. And it was like, yeah, that's it. And so my right. feeling with so much of these things, it, it's the glorious both and. So somehow there's a place, like you're up and down with the spirit going up, I relate to that, soul going down, yeah, yeah, I want that too. I'm greedy, I want it all. You know, I love the, sure. the intellectual structure. I love the music. I, and then, and then that sense of the, 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 I never know is I'm a breath away from mystery the whole time. Right. And then, but I can also try and articulate and of spending day after day after day, trying to, as a philosopher, trying to articulate the clearest possible conceptual structure I can give. And though, and they don't seem contradictory. They feel like they fit together perfectly. I, uh, when you mentioned that book, I, flashed and my mind flashed immediately. I know exactly where that book, my copy of your book is in my books, ah. my bookcases. And I, um, along with other books of yours, and uh, I go into it now and then to be, because I love this idea of mystery. I think that's, uh, that's a, guiding, a guiding term. You know, it's really important to keep that similar to unknowing, but it's a little, it's a more beautiful word. And uh, uh, I think it would be, uh, there's been so much of interesting things written about Mysterium Conjunctionis of Jung and uh, the uh, books of uh, uh, Odo Kazal, who was a Christian uh, monk who wrote about the mystery of the ritual, the Christian ritual as a mystery. The of unknowing, of course. The what? The cloud of unknowing. The cloud of unknowing, certainly. Campbell yeah. Runner was a writer uh, who wrote about the mystery uh, connecting especially the Greek uh, uh, mythology with uh, Christian ritual. And uh, a long time ago, he was writing that, that material in the 40s, I think, in the 30s and 40s, of 1930s and 40s. So uh, 
uh, that's very rich. I think to me, it's really the word mystery invites the soul into whatever you're doing because it, it takes away the feeling that you must know everything or you must know what you're talking about. And, it's, and it kind of relates back to misty for me as well. The idea yes. of the initiate with her eyes closed. The initiate, in, yes. The fool. I, I, I've got a picture of the fool up on my there. I don't know why. Um, yeah. But, um, but I, I relate to it ever since I was a kid, that feeling of like, here I go. I don't yes, know. You know, right. that constant beginning, always just like starting right. off, always. That's right. It's a beautiful card, that uh, tarot card of the fool. Isn't it? I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's yeah. followed me for all my life now. With that. Stand, it's still there. So how do you feel now, having gone in to become a Catholic priest when 13, how do you, how do you feel about um, God? How do you feel about that as a reality or as an idea or as whatever it is to you? Um, there was an article uh, published of an interview with me not long ago that was entitled, um, I rarely use the word God. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, as I say, I'm very influenced by Nicholas of Cusa, who was uh, about, he wrote about God, and as, a, as he was a cardinal of the, of the Roman Church, and, and uh, you know, he had to be careful in those days, when he was writing, he was born in 1402, you can imagine, in those days, you don't say things lightly, I mean, your head goes but Nicholas off. also had the both and thing going, didn't he? He did. He, he also did. talks about the coincidence of opposites. He did. He he has a beautiful. He does. I think I think of him as the James Joyce of medieval philosophy. Wow, because interesting. He used to. Why? He used to shape words in his own way. So, for example, this is Latin. I hope I can talk about this for a moment. Yeah. So there are two words in Latin. One is posse, which means it's possible. Posse. Right. We get our word possible from it. And there's a, a little word, est, means is. Yeah. And so he uses the word possessed. He puts possible and is together into one word. That's such an interesting thought. You know, to, I mean, that's what James Joyce would do. He would, he would combine these words to have a new, a new opening, to open up there. And he did that, to open up into, so what's possible is. And is, is it, what's the relationship between what is and what's possible? It's, it's a very interesting Beautiful. puzzle that is, that is brought in those kind of words. But at any rate, that, that's an aside. Um, so he, uh, he, is, he, he was uh, about God. He was just trying to describe God. One image he uses, he says that, you, do you know, I don't know if you ever did this. When I was a kid, I did. I would take a ruler and make angles with a ruler. And, and make kind of a circle out of angles. Did you ever do that? You take a no. piece, a, a ruler or something, a, a, a straight edge, and you make, anyway, you can make just by drawing lines, you make these angles. And when you step back, you look at the beautiful circle. But when you look closely, it's not a circle because you see all the angles. Right. They're all straight lines, even though they're very small. That's the image he gives for hmm. knowledge of God, that when you, when you step back, it looks like, oh, I know what God is. When you get closer, you realize your knowledge is not a real circle. Very good. It's, it's got these gaps. It's a great image, I think. So, so, so if you if you if you don't use the word, and I don't use the word very much because it's so loaded. Yeah. yeah. It, do you have in your life 
the sense of something uh, transcendent to us, which you relate to, or or no, not anymore. I I do, but to me, God is more like a a, a absolutely clear window. It's like a window rather than a thing. God is a window. It's like it's a, it, there's a nothingness to God to, that has to be there, I think. An emptiness, to use the uh, Eastern term, shunyata, like an, 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 uh, an, an emptiness to it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's empty. Not, not saying empty in any bad way, just that it has to be, you can't feel that you've got it solved. Or, you know, it's got to be open. So that's my idea. God is a window. And it's very important. In fact, I've written a book, which I, I don't know if I'll ever get it published, uh, about the, the first chapters about the infinite, the relation to the infinite, and try to say how it's essential, really it's essential to have that relationship. But you can't know what it is. I, that's, that's something I really resonate with, and partly by mystery, because I mean, mystery can also mean, can be terrifying, you know, it's like what's around the yeah, corner could be out to get you. But but the, what I mean by it is is that that thing which is greater, which I feel like I touch the edge of, and which always feels like love, always feels like this incredible benevolence, um, which is really what happened to me when I was young. It's like I touched that for the first time, and everything mm. was different from that point on. And um, and and so by the fact of its transcendence, it's, it's like it's like it's like a cell in my finger knowing what it's like to be Tim. It's just like it's not going to happen. But I ha I do feel a still this kind of relationship with with that transcendent goodness, as it were. And I just wondered if that had stayed the same and developed for you from when you were a, a kid. No, that has changed a great deal because yeah. I really I started out thinking of God as my grandfather. Right. You know, right. and. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, and it changed and changed and changed over time. It constantly changes. I, I think the most, the strongest influence on me personally, and in my thinking too, has been Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his letters from prison talks about God. And he, he has very interesting ways of talking about God. Like when he says that today we live, uh, we live without God in the presence of God. Mm. So it's a, he, he, is, he, he writes one sentence after another, that, uh, each sentence very paradoxical in that way that he affirms God and takes it away, takes it away and then affirms in the same breath, in the same sentence. And I like that. I think that that's a good way to do it because it's bringing the emptiness that's absolutely essential and that people go crazy and they get psychologically ill when they, um, when they fill that, that too much, they fill it in too much and they think they have it. So, so yeah, I, I need to, I, I, want, I want to just draw us back actually to somewhere we were earlier when you just said that, because feels like to I just want to a theme for me has in looking back at my life and looking at spirituality and having been around it now for so many decades is how much of it starts to look like various forms of mental illness to me and that 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 and, and how and how and how I have to question myself as well on my own experiences and how I've interpreted them and and be able to 
dare to look deeper into them and and I wondered what whether you resonate with that at all I do certainly uh, I, I entered this monastery which at the time and in the context of my family and my teachers and everyone I knew was a very reasonable thing to do in fact it was a very noble thing to do it's very a high-minded thing to do and totally reasonable but now when I look back on it it's like joining a cult yeah and it was <laughs> It was joining a cult. It was. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was. <laughs> and it was an insanity. Something possessed me. I mean, you can yeah. say it was. It worked out okay, but it was dangerous. Yeah. And yeah. I think some of my, I think some of my classmates, whom I admired very much, I mean, I hate to say, you know, but I, I just wonder. Uh, I'd like to talk to them about it because it looks to me from this end like their lives were lost in some ways by joining that cult and staying with it. Yeah, 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 I can understand that. I, I, I was part of a kind of Hindu cult for a little while when I was in mm -hmm. my late teens and early 20s. And uh, it wasn't too bad. And in, generally, it was quite good for me, really, but only because I got in and got out. And I can see how easy it is to lose all of that. And, and, and it's therefore it becomes hard then because I want to articulate the, the, the valuable thing that I find in all of this without it falling into all of that. And, the, and that's where mystery is so important because if you it lose that, since that certainty, it's like... No. If the mystery is there, you're, you're, you're safe. Safe, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, 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 and also the sense of you know i i find now you know if someone comes to town or if someone says oh you must see so he's an enlightened master it's like i am not interested i mean i'm just not interested <laughs> when i was 20 i'd be like yeah really yeah, right. like, really is he or oh, really or she you know but now it's just like oh please i'd much prefer to talk to you you know whoever it is yeah. and yeah uh, because it's it's it just feels like my my ddd my bullshit yeah, detector yeah. making so much noise well, i right. hardly think It'd be better to say, oh, here's an unenlightened person here. Talk to that person. Yeah, really. I just, you know, I, it's like, I'm. Uh, that's where I've ended up after all these decades, just seeing, I want to meet people who are human beings exploring this mystery. Yes. Who have found something which hopefully I can learn from and appreciate or, or just got their own particularity, which is yeah. shining through them. Um, and all that other stuff just feels very, very, um, well, just well I think, you know, you know, in a way, um, we, we are, it's a wonder we survive on this planet and you wonder how long we will because uh, uh, mental illness is, is almost universal. You know, I mean, it, maybe it is. We're all, we're all mentally ill. But I wonder whether that's, that is actually the condition and whether, you know, some of it is, it, it's a matter of whether it's functional or not. I mean, I, in my bleakest moments, especially if I, when I've got a lot into science, but in my bleakest moments, and, and it's kind of funny, you know, it's not too serious, but it feels like, oh God, I live on a planet with 7 billion delusional monkeys. There's all these monkeys and each monkey's created a dream about what it is. That's and true. some are really convinced that theirs is true and the rest don't, haven't got a clue. And this one's really worried because they haven't got one. And they're all living out these crazy lives. Um, and, and we're just kind of these strange things, which, and there is some, there's something in that as well. Um, I think to, to recognize the way that we have created fantasies about what this is in an attempt to understand it. And, and you look back in history, which I absolutely adore to do, 
you can see how different it was or abroad or go to another culture or go and spend time with a shamanic culture and you just wow this is a whole different way of appreciating what existence is and it that's works right. in a way and it fails in a way that's right and then so, and and then it becomes you know the mental illness becomes just when it's absolutely not functional but most people mm -hmm. can it's functional it's kind of a functional yes i think that's a very good way to look at it there are different ways different ways of, of describing it uh um, Freud, what did Freud, I can't think of what, how Freud put it, but he was aware of the universal neurosis, you know, the fact that we're all neurotic in some way. <laughs> and uh, original sin, I, I would understand that way. Oh, interesting. Original sin that, that. that all people when they are born have something off, you know, like there's something off. Yeah, yeah. And uh you have to deal with it in some way. So that's part of your makeup and you live the best you can, but you know that there's always something that's not quite right. That's really, I love that. That's, that's, that's the nicest interpretation of that that I've heard. Tom. <laughs> that, that kind of rescues that idea for me, actually, because yeah. I do feel that. I, and, and I'm not, because, I, because I'm very drawn to the evolutionary picture, um, not in not in a reductionist way, not in a material, but but drawn to it because of its optimism. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't, you know, when I hear people go, "You're already perfect," you just need to see it. And I just feel like, uh, you know, or, or everyone's good, really. And you think, no, everyone's got the potential uh, for good. That's right. They can become good, but they're not already good. No, that's we, right. We haven't reached there. We're trying to reach there. We're, we're being pulled, maybe even towards it, but. It isn't already happened, and then we've got yeah. to mess it all up. Yeah, no, no. There, uh, it. I, I've been interested in uh, Teilhard de Chardin for many years. Yeah, since okay, I was. So, yeah, since I was, you know, I don't know what. Yeah, in my twenties, probably twenty-four or twenty-three or twenty-four, and um, I get I get inspired by him. Although now I go back and read him. I was very inspired in my 20s. Now in my, at 80, I go back and read him and he's far too pious for me. I have a hard time reading. <laughs> uh, I can't believe it was, he was so pious. And, but at the same time, I love his invention of new terms or new words and, uh, and his imagination of how things go. I thought it was a way of recovering the world in many ways. Um, I think that's what it does. I, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I tend to be someone who has to think on their own a lot. So I, you know, I just walk on the Somerset levels and talk to myself and then arrive at places. And then afterwards find out, of course, everyone else, lots of people have been there before me. And that's lovely because then I can appreciate. So <laughs> the Chardin, uh, A.N. Whitehead, people like this are people I've discovered after I've already, I've kind of yeah, right. gone, oh, this will make, and then I've come back and they've gone, oh, you, were, you, you already laid that. I could get there because you'd already been there. Right. And right. Uh, and I love them for it. It feels like it's mm -hmm. just there's this, and he and and he definitely has that. And what I love about it is that well, the, the old here is an old Catholic word. Uh, the, the, it feels like it's redemptive. It feels like that we are moving that the past is accumulating. Yeah. And that every moment is new, and that that because it's based on the past, that there's a chance of greater wisdom. There's great that it can be more than doesn't mean it always will be but it can be yes it means that the the suffering and the evils of existence they we can they're 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 redeemable by the future 
that we can move towards. And that I find resonates with my own experience of goodness. I was doing a crossword this morning and, and uh, the, the clue was some author, and I forget who it was now, said, um, there's one thing we, what is the one thing we can't live without? And uh, it was a four letter word. And uh, it worked out, I could see right away, it was hope. And I thought that, so the crossword gave me an opportunity to reflect on uh, that this, I think is what people like Chardin and even in Whitehead, I would include, uh, although I don't know him that, that well, but that uh, uh, they give us hope uh, yeah. and to have a vision for the future. Uh, that gives us hope. I think, I think it's true. We absolutely need some hope. And I think of that as a therapist, what I do a lot of my work is I don't try to help people figure themselves out. That's a hopeless cause. What I do is hopeless. <laughs> what, I, what I do instead is I try to, um, I try really hard to not so much what, not so much what I say, but how I relate to, to develop an atmosphere of hope. And uh, Chardin gives that to me. He gives me a way of looking beyond the, the immediate uh, problems that are hard to see past. I love that the line where at the end of his life, he described himself as a pilgrim from the future. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Isn't that lovely? That is beautiful, so, yeah. So on the theme of hope, Tom, um, what's your, how do you see death? I was thinking of that when we were talking earlier. Let's see what we were, we were talking about, uh, about the soul, about living in the dream. That's at the very beginning of our conversation. I was thinking about that came, occurred to me. This is something that that's the next thing to talk about. <laughs> so uh, I'm always, I, I, I get challenged. I, uh, my friend Hillman, who was very, we, he and I were very close. We had a lot of very close, close intimate conversations. And not too long before he died, maybe a few months before he died, we were having a conversation. And he said to me, and this is somebody who's written, who had written 25, to me, masterful books on soul and, and, uh, getting past a, a, a literalist world and materialist world. And he said to me, then he said, uh, he said about death, I'm a materialist. He said, just nothing. And I was kind of shocked that he was so dogmatic about that at that point, that after all of his work, his life work, that he would say that so definitely. And uh, so I, you know, it made me wonder. And ever since I've wondered more and more. Of course, we always do. But I feel that seeing life the way we were, just, we were describing at the very beginning of our conversation today, the dream aspect of it, that that allows for a different way of imagining death. That uh, I don't think it does a lot of good to come to a solution to what afterlife is or not, or if it does, it does or doesn't exist or what it looks like. One, one answer that I give sometimes is that I like all the answers given so far. I like heaven very much. 
<laughs> so I entertain that as a possibility. Um, I like reincarnation quite a bit. If I, as long as I don't get reincarnated as a centipede, I'm fine. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I really like these simple thoughts. Um, they're the ones I find the most exciting. And, and there was a point where I thought, well, I can frame the question, I think, in this way, which is when this body start, doesn't function anymore and this experience of sensation stops, does this experience of imagination stop as well? And I've, when I phrase it like that, it has a twist to it, which is about, obviously there's a whole metaphysics about what the relationship between the two is, but it enables me to go, oh, right. So, so, and then when I look at all of the literature on, on death and people's experiences, and I've talked to a lot of people with near-death experiences and so forth, and my own journeys off into the depths of the soul. Sure. It just sounds like they're dreaming, except it's not dreaming in some trivial, oh, it's just a dream. It's like dreaming. Yeah. The right. dreaming. Right. It's the bardos. It's that 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 yeah. this dream reality is a reality that's that's emerged, I would say, from the biological, but now exists in its own right. And that we and that there's this um way of seeing it where it's like, oh well, you just go deeper into the dream um and that level you know i know when i sleep at night and i'm and my senses close down suddenly the the reality which i'm experiencing now kind of sort of becomes a whole reality it becomes a world and i can walk around in it and have experiences in it and and that when i listen to people's near-death experience of which you know there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these things now that we have they just sound like that they sound like oh there's a continuation of that level of yes, life, yes. the thing which is most me and most you. So it reminds me of uh, a passage in this, this uh, film interview of Jung by the BBC uh, that I, I've shown my classes for years. Uh, so I, I have it memorized practically. And, right. and he, um, he was asked a question about death and he said he thought from all of his work with soul that, I mean, it's a paraphrase mm. for sure, but that with, with all of his understanding of soul that he felt that, uh, that the psyche doesn't need the physical. Uh, that, that he said, even in our, our waking life, our regular lives, we don't need the physical connection. We can, we can get along without it. And so therefore dying doesn't have to imply that that is not, doesn't continue. And he used a very odd example, I think, uh, for that big question. He said, it's like when you ever walk down a street and have, have the sense you knew what was around the corner before you got there. He said this, and I thought, that's a quite pedestrian example. For <laughs> Literally pedestrian. <laughs> 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 exactly. So, for uh, for that, but uh, but I think he's trying to say that we do have intuitions that are that are not limited to to factual knowledge. Um, also, I don't know. I uh, Alan Watts had some answers to it too. He said it's like having a fist and then opening your hand. What happens to the fist? 
or he says, that's very, <laughs> yeah, he says, you're sitting down and you stand up. What happens to your lap? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't enlighten me at all. <laughs> yeah, that's got that. I mean, I love Alan Watts, but that, that's got that Eastern, you know, my, 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 the, against that, you know, my, yeah. my, my, my own intuition. And of course, that's all it can possibly be. But my own intuition that's developed over the last period of my life has been it's kind of like the opposite of the classic idea you you hear all the time of you, know, you dissolve back into the oneness like a drop into the ocean which when i was younger sounded like oh that sounds good but now it sounds like so what the fuck was the point of being a drop then if it's yeah just i know back it's like, right. so so my life your life my kids life they're all my parents right. nothing it's just and now it feels like the opposite now it feels like i had an experience last year-ish, just over a year ago, which was unlike anything I'd had before, where I got catapulted into present light, just light and uh, extraordinary. And it felt really like God. It was just, and, and there was no consciousness of Tim, no consciousness of the world, no, nothing, just, and then I was back with Tim. And it felt to me very much in that, that I could have that experience because of Tim because of my individuality, yeah. I was able to experience this thing which was beyond my individuality. And, and it, so it feels much more to me than what now, like rather than dissolving into the light, that we are, we are the light, we are the spark, and our individuality allows the light to be, or we, create, or we can be conscious of it, or we even create it by, our, by forming, and that the story, the souls that we're forming the, the accumulation of all this experience is what's making the stroll in Walt Whitman's line, you know, we're robust enough to be able to sustain that level of communion rather than it being like just dissolved it away. It's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. So see now Hillman's uh, question and the, all those kinds of statements. And I think the reason why he gave me his answer was that um, it would be that, uh, that that answer about dissolving is, is part of a larger myth of being in life, so that you, you like the idea of dissolving, uh, that you might glorify the whole life as some sort of vague cloud around us, and you just become part of that cloud. Um, I don't like that image myself, and I don't like what it does to people, even when they have it. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't think it's a good one to have. I I, I distrust that one. So uh, I would, but I would like to. I think it's terribly important to be open and honest. You have to keep your openness because you really can't. This is one of those things you can't know. So our ignorance is really important in this question. Yes. But uh, I also have this feeling. I think about it these days quite a bit that. It's, it's worthwhile really working hard at coming up with your own answer to it, yeah. even if it has a lot of emptiness to it, but to have an answer and to live with that answer. So this is like you've mentioned a few times people who make up words and I'm guilty of making up a lot of words. And, and but the, my latest one, which I find useful, it relates to this in life, not really in death, which is I, I have ended up, it feels like almost rescuing a lot of people from Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual traditions, as they're coming through right now, which 
give people this idea that their individuality is the error, is the problem, they need not to have it, soul is get rid of it. And if you do get rid of it, you can be in forever and that's where you should be and that's enlightenment. And, and, and yet this sense of communion um, which is fun, you know, that's the word I took from my brother Bernard, who was my mentor that I, when I ran away to that friar, and the friar became a friend. When I was off go in, into Advaita Vedanta and going, it's all an illusion. He was the one that kept on coming back to the individual and to communion. And I was like, I, uh, and I thought he missed it. I honestly did, Tom. And I look back and I think, the arrogance. Yeah, yeah, I I know, just, I know. Bernard doesn't really get it. And now <laughs> I look back and went, oh yeah, Bernard really got it, didn't he? I didn't really get it. And, and, and so I've got this idea now of saying, when I'm, when I'm trying to explain it, of going, look, I think we're evolving from individuals into what I call unividuals. And a unividual is an individual who's conscious of unity, not either or, but a both and. And that, that's that consciousness of that greater transcendent thing that unites everything. Mm. And that we, we therefore nice, evolve yeah. into this, but it's through, not, not so the individual is, is the foundation, not the obstacle. Yeah, I wonder if it's, um, you know, it's just as difficult to understand I as it is to understand God. I mean, it's very hard to get either of these terms right. And they need to be both and. and they have to be both uh, individual and uh, union and community and connection. So... The eros has to be there as part of the of definition or description of what you're doing. There has to be the erotic aspects of the whole thing rather than just the logical one. So in that regard, and what you said makes a lot of sense to me, and especially as uh, if we can keep that impossible thing, you can't you really use your mind, as far as at least I can't, to bring together those two things, community and individual, enough. I can't, you know, my mind's not capable of fusing those two. I mean, I understand fully your word, uh, your use of a new word for it. That makes a lot of sense to me, but uh, it's still difficult to. And yet, isn't there together. also a sense as well? I mean, this is something I'm getting more and more where it just feels like, look, I am the universe. What else could I possibly be? I am the universe as Tim talking to the universe as Thomas. What, right. what is, is there the universe and Tim and Thomas? That couldn't possibly be, could there? We, we've, we've come from it like, well, Alan Watts, you know, the, the, the universe has, has, has peopled like an apple tree apples. It's like, it's, yeah. we are here. We are it. We are the universe going, what's the universe? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it any good? Is it safe? What's this dream I've now turned into? You know, we are that. And, and, yeah. and what else could we be? You know what... Uh... What you just said reminds me again, I'm surprised he keeps coming to my mind today. Nicholas of Cusa says, speaking to his friend Giuliano, he says, the world Julianizes in you. Ooh. Which is getting close, I think, to what you're saying. It's very, very close. And, I'm, and it's interesting you brought up Nicholas of Cusa because he's been around in my life as well not as much as yours I, I don't think but he's been around for decades and constantly has popped up and often with that sense of that I said you know oh I'm I found this oh he found this 
in the 15th century. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this sense, because of the accumulation, my always the sense is, oh, I could find it so easily because he'd already found it for me. That's right, yeah. And you get that sense sometimes with, with, with places, like ideas, like a place, yeah. almost like, oh, you know, T.S. Eliot was here. I recognize this. He, uh, yeah, he was here, right. or um, Nicholas was here, or Walt Whitman obviously went past here. I can see that's he, he reported this place. One of the very last book that Hillman wrote was called Lament of the Dead. Oh. And one of the things he writes in there is about footnotes, of writing footnotes in your books. And he did a lot of that. He did a lot of note. He was sort of this erudite scholar and always used footnotes for everything. And I, I've done it most of the time in my books as well. But he says it's not about, it's not about uh, defending what you're saying or naming your sources out of some uh, you know, uh, obligation or something like that. What it is, it's reviving the dead. It's, it's recognizing, recognizing that these people gave their whole lives for this idea that has now inspired you. That their whole lives were dedicated to finding these rich ideas. And each person has their own set, his or her own set of these ideas that are going to inspire you. And, so you put the footnote there as kind of putting a vase of flowers next to the grave, you know, it's like that kind of a thing. Well, to recognize that they are not just to not just to honor them, but to recognize that that we are part with them, that we are with them. Their their life is now in us. Yeah. And what they've done. And there's such a sense of connection. I, I have such affection for people when when I find especially in the past, the, the, the dead, when I see that I bring quite often have I discover someone I resonate with and, and it's not too long ago. I like to bring up a picture. Yeah. And just like sit with the picture. I did that with. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Like, I just want to yeah. sit with that picture and go, hello. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. You know, you lived in a different time. I'm sure right. we remain very different, but thank you so much. For... Mm. So maybe that's a good place. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tom, for well, coming into my life when you did and coming back in today and having this conversation. And I can't know. tell you how much I've enjoyed this. And it's so easy. And there's no one else that I've, that, I can, that I've been able to talk to with such ease and, and understanding and move, move smoothly from one thing to another. It's wonderful, really. Yeah, good. Me too. I feel exactly the same. And it's a huge, it's a joy and a privilege. And Let's stay connected. Okay, let's do that. All right, until the next time. Okay, bye Tom.